Hi everyone, welcome to Season 2 of the Asian Hustle Network Podcast, where we interview Asian entrepreneurs and professionals around the world. And for this season, we're going to take our conversations deeper about our Asian identity and hustle stories. We also want to announce that we are hosting our first ever Asian Hustle Network Uplifted Conference next spring in Las Vegas. For more info and to reserve your seats, check out our website at asianhustlenetwork.com. Don't forget to grab a copy of our recently released book, Uplifted, Journeys of Abundance, Community, and Identity, which tells the personal stories of how 21 Asian American entrepreneurs are shifting culture. You can order it on our website as well. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. His name is Rod Ahmed. Rod is the founder and CEO of Law Trades, angel investor, writer, and musician. In 2011, Rod started my Facebook cover photo, one of the first apps in the Facebook app store that grew to over 30 million hits per month while attending law school. In 2015, he got into the 500 Global Flagship Accelerator Program and launched Law Trades, one of the first marketplaces for legal services that made it easy for big companies to hire legal freelancers. The company has gone on to raise $9.7 million in total funding, and freelancers earn millions on the platform every year. In 2019, he started publishing a newsletter called Space Cold. Rod is originally from Queens, New York, and a graduate from the university at Buffalo Law School. Rod, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone. We're so happy to have Rod Ahmed today on our podcast. Rod's an awesome entrepreneur. We got introduced through one of my... We actually got introduced to one of our friends. She's actually currently working as our head of growth. And we're super excited to hear more about his story. So, Rod, what was your childhood experience like and what led you down the entrepreneurship path? I think it was a pretty tough slash interesting childhood, like probably many first generation folks in the U.S. I had a really strict dad and a really lenient mom. And I think that that kind of balanced out in certain ways where, you know, the expectation has always kind of been to like, be X, Y, and Z, like probably many people probably listening to this podcast have experienced lawyer, doctor, scientist, whatever. But my mom played a really interesting role in my life where she sort of like encouraged me to pursue more of like the creative side of me that was just a little bit more free spirited, free flowing. And I actually grew up listening to a lot of music and I used to play in a punk rock band. And I love that creative ability of it. The downside was that it didn't really make a ton of money, which is why I ended up sort of like going the more sort of college route and then and went to law school and all of that. And but then eventually I was just like, I'll figure out some way to make money off of it. And a startup seemed like a good middle ground of like doing creative stuff. And then, you know, hopefully at some point it makes some money and and, and kind of going from there. I really, I really like that that mindset too, because it's not true to believe, I think compared to how it was back then, that there's a lot more ways to make money if you're creative right now. But I think like 10, 12 years ago, the idea of being a musician, being a cook, being a content creator seems so far-fetched, you know? Yeah. Out of curiosity too, like, how do you feel like as you were just 
being more creative, being in a rock band, uh, being in a band and playing music. Do you feel like that sort of experience helped you become the entrepreneur that you are today? Like what kind of creative process would, would you feel like that you took from the experience and then you apply it to be like creating your own company, which is law trades, which you talk about in a bit. Do you feel like that process is sort of like helped you shape the person that you are today? I think so. Cause I still basically listening to the same music that I've listened to like in high school and it, and I still get like a similar feeling, which is like, for me, like listening to punk rock music just made me feel really free, made me feel like anti-establishment, made me just want to do the opposite of what everyone else is doing. And I think fundamentally really good startups go against the grain in that way where they look at the world and they see what exists and they try to do the opposite of that, you know, and, and with some sort of good measure incentive behind it of helping people. So there's always a part of me that's just like that sort of high schooler, skater, punker kid, but now like doing like internet companies. And there's a lot of overlap behind that. I'm definitely more on like the product design marketing side of things. And like, I like still lot, you know, like lots of hours of deep works. So I'm not a big like meeting guy, even though like nowadays, like we're doing a lot of recruiting. And so I have, you know, I have to sort of talk to like a lot of people, which is fine. Cause a lot of them are really interesting. And I love to get to know interesting people, but yeah, like I, there's always an element that I guess for me to still keep this fun where I have to still feel like I'm creating something new. I'm iterating. I'm, I have a say in something like the fonts or the colors or the shade of gray we're using. It's just the same old story as before, but just interpreted through the lens of a company, I think. Yeah, I really like that too. I really like the fact that you mentioned that you're going against you know, establishment, anti-establishment, and the fact that you became a lawyer. <laughs> you know? So I really like I really like yeah. the the contrast. And kind of walk us through that too. Like what year was this when you decided to become a lawyer? And like why didn't you continue being a lawyer? What led you down the path of, hey, one day I'm just gonna wake up, I'm gonna be a startup founder, I'm gonna create this awesome company. Like, what was that mindset behind law school at the time? And what was what year was this? So it can give us a, like more of an idea. Yeah. So 2010 is when I started my first year of law school. Um, why law school? I was actually genuinely interested in law and philosophy. And that was actually my, my major in undergrad. It was philosophy of law and legal studies. And I, you know, I just found law to be this fascinating thing. It's like this piece of code that society writes and people abide by it and it can change and it can be evolved and, you know, and, and it kind of makes. So from, from that perspective, I found it like, like an interesting sort of area to sort of learn about. And then law school just seemed like a logical next step for me to just get deeper into that. And also it probably made my parents really happy that like, I like was kind of going down that path, but at least for me in my head, I was just like, okay, but I'm genuinely interested in it. So it doesn't feel like I'm doing this for somebody else. The way that it sort of detoured was probably after my first year of law school, I actually launched this other internet company kind of for fun. It was this web app for Facebook. It was actually one of the first apps in the Facebook app store when they had it around and it allowed people to customize their cover photos. So I built this simple website where you can go in and scroll through different sort of cover photo images, whether it's like, you know, like, like pop stars or Justin Bieber photos or quotes, and you would click in it and automatically change it on your Facebook profile. So somehow that grew to about 30 million hits a month. And I ran some banner ads and turned it into like a six figure business while I was still in law school. 
So then when it came time to like interview for like different firms, I was like, I'm like making like more money, like doing less work. So like that doesn't like add up or make make a lot of sense for me to trade that off. And that's when I guess I caught like the entrepreneurial slash internet. And I've always been like tinkering around the internet growing up. I just found it really fascinating. And actually like the internet was like very much not like banned from my house, but my parents really didn't like me being on like aim and like browsing the web and like joining random chat rooms. They just found it to being like a waste of time. So like when I was younger, I would have to like sneak like down to the basement where we had our dial up and eventually our sort of modem. And like at two or three o'clock in the morning, I would chat with people and like, I would build little like aim buddy icons and sell some of them for fun and sell burn CD. So I had this whole sort of thing on the internet that like was really frowned upon by my family growing up. So I guess it all just kind of like connected eventually back to law school. And I was just like, well, that was really cool. I built something that like removed a couple of steps and a bunch of people found it valuable. And I figured out some way to, you know, sell some banner ads and make some money off of it. Like, can I like do this again? And like, what would that look like? And that sort of like set the stage a little bit for law trades, which is like a marketplace for legal services. And it was a much harder problem to solve for and took way longer than just like, oh, let me post this up and the thing goes viral. But it's been just like an amazing learning experience journey and, and all of that. And I just can't see myself doing anything else. I love it. I love how you found your true passion. And when you brought aim, man, like those are the days, dude, the it was so fun back then just being on like aim all the time. But I know exactly what you meant. My parents said the same thing. They're always like, why are you on the computer? Why aren't you like reading books? Why aren't you going out? Why are you going to the library? But I think like that that experience is like, I think that really shaped who we are. You know, we like to stay interconnected, like to build our curiosity with the internet, got us familiar with everything. So man, that just brings back a lot of good memories too. And I think that the best part about the story is like about how you're able to tie back the experience of building, I believe it's my Facebook cover forward.com. Is that website? Yeah, probably not. I mean, I think I still pay the hosting fees for it, but like <laughs> I haven't updated it in years. But eventually also like there's competitors that came out and like out SEO'd me and like there's a bunch of copycats. And that was like also like a learning lesson. Where I was like, oh, this was fun. And like, it's going to last like this forever, but it only like was like a good like two or three years. And then like the traffic sort of spiked back down. So that was like really my first lesson in entrepreneurship, which is just yeah. kind of like you can't just like launch something and just expect it to just like do everything. Like you have to like really yeah. monitor it. You have to improve it. You have to iterate it. You can't just sit back and collect the checks. So, you know, it was an amazing high and it was also like a really low low, but it like just taught me, you know, like that's just how the internet, like internet companies work in that way. And you have to constantly be like, you know, I'm sure from, for you guys, you guys have to constantly be coming out with like really awesome content and like mm -hmm. growing the brand and growing your community. And it's not just like a set it and forget it kind of thing. Like there is like blood, sweat and tears that go into products like this, even if it looks like it's totally free and you just update something, you need a team behind it. And I think I took a lot of that lessons into kind of like building out like my current company, but it was still fun. I enjoyed it. I had no intention of making any money from it. So that was just like a delightful surprise. Yeah. I mean, it really led you down the path of like learning a lot and getting your feet wet into entrepreneurship. But yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about law trades. Like I see that you, you were part of 500 startups. So walk us through this. Like, so during law school, you started this Facebook cover app company. So after law school, 
What made you make the transition? Did you start your career as in big law first in New York? Or is, was this something in the back of your mind where it's like, man, like there must be something more to life than just working in my, my corporate job? Like what was that? What was the start of like law trades that, that we should know about? Yeah. So I've been actually, I just started tinkering with law trades right after I graduated law school. I ended up just going all in on it instead of going and working as a lawyer. I was just like, let me just try this thing out for a year. Worst case, if it doesn't work out, I can go and work as a traditional, you know, as a traditional lawyer at any of these firms that are in New York City. But I really wanted to give it a good year or two and just to figure out like if this is a viable path or not. I'd save some money from like the the Facebook app site. And there was a few other similar ones I did content-based websites that just got like made money from like ad clicks. And, and to me, I just basically spent, it ended up being longer than a year, but I spent the first couple of years really just treating it like a side project kind of thing where I was working on it a lot, but I wasn't ready to just be like, this is what I'm doing. Like I, I still needed to think through the idea. I still needed to figure out who I'm going to sort of sell this to. I mean, today law trades is like a marketplace that connects people to legal freelancers, a kind of like a Fiverr Upwork model, but for corporate legal services. But at the time when we launched, it was like, just, I really, I, I was just like, I just want to just connect people. Right. I, I was really inspired by, at the time there were, com- you know, companies like Uber and Airbnb were really starting to sort of take off. And I saw all these other marketplace models out there for all these industries. And I was just like, well, I kind of know how a law firm operates. I do know why law firms are very expensive because there's a bunch of overhead. They have physical offices and really fancy locations. There's a bunch of partners at the top that make millions of dollars. Like what if you just got rid of all of that and just connected these independent lawyers directly to clients? Like, wouldn't it be faster? Wouldn't it be more affordable? And if we took all this offline work and brought it on the internet, could people be more productive that way? But at its earliest days, like Law Trades was just this website that had two buttons, one that said, I want to provide legal services, one that says I need legal services and people opted in. And then I made it look like it was automated, but it was just basically me just in- email introducing people and just letting them figure it out and just learning from how they interacted and what kind of services they need. And I just kept drilling deeper and deeper into that. That is an amazing story. And this is a definition of an MVP, man, like minimal viable product <laughs> and really getting that, yeah. that idea into place too. And I really like the fact that you created a marketplace, but at what point were you creating this product where you realized that you have product market fit, right? And how did yeah. you advertise this product too? Did you go on different forums? Did you pay for ads? I would imagine it's 2015. So social media is still around. Leverage social media to find a product market fit. Or did you get like like boots on the ground, go out there, door knock these law friends and be like, hey, like check out my app. Like how did you hustle your way and get more users? Yeah. So it started with that. I eventually recruited my co-founder um, who's still with the company now. I went to college with him and he was in my fraternity. And we did start like knocking door to door, going on Yelp, like with a square reader, charging people 300 bucks to join the platform and promising them clients, even though we had no idea how we would get any clients. And then we realized like that actually is the harder problem to solve for not getting lawyers to pay for your services. So it started off as like the SaaS subscription model. And like it would give, we we allowed lawyers to like upload their real time availability. So it was kind of like a ZocDoc for lawyers where people, clients could go in, click like a slot, get a consultation and they would get the lead and they would pay us in exchange for that. That wasn't really good product market fit. It wasn't sustainable. We were going after so many different practice areas from divorce lawyers to personal injury lawyers. And like, like it was just too, we were spread too thin. And eventually we focused around startups and small businesses. And we found 
well, I'll tell you like more of this story later. We thought that we had product market fit at that time, but it really wasn't. But it was enough for us to get the attention of 500 startups because we were growing. We were, I think, doing a few thousand dollars in revenue a month. And it was like picking up and we were focused on startups. And in terms of like social network and how we marketed, I actually wrote a lot on Quora. So I just basically went on this website called Quora, which is a Q&A website. And I just filtered by all the legal questions that people were asking. And I just cracked open my old law school textbooks and just answered hundreds and thousands of them for free. And I just would link law trades at the bottom to sort of check it out. And a bunch of people from Quora checked out the website because I would answer this question like, should I incorporate as an LLC or a C Corp? And I must have answered that in like 50 different ways on the site. But it eventually drove some traffic back to the the main homepage. And uh, what's cool about Quora is like, it also like picks up with SEO. So like, you know, if, if it is like a really popular question, people can type it on Google and then Quora will usually be like the first answer there. So not only do you get Quora traffic, you get Google SEO traffic as well. So that like jump-started a lot of our early growth or a lot of our early users. Uh, we eventually applied to 500 startups. And after like two failed attempts, they accepted us like on the third try because we just ask anyone and everyone that was involved in 500 stars to put in a good word for us. So we definitely hustled our way into that and crazy story with that. But eventually, you know, we got in, moved to Mountain View, grew the company from there. And, you know, we can get into phase two of this, but we had to eventually had to make another major pivot to the company that kind of brought us into where we are now. I love the stories. Like if you guys can see, there's a big smile on my face from the pure hustle of everything you've done, dude. Like being at Quora, like I didn't realize that's that's actually very genius. Like go in there, establish yourself as an expert. So you're building the trust with your community online and having that flow traffic into your new website. So I think that's absolutely amazing. And 500 startups, right? You talk to everybody to get into that. I think that's extremely smart. So I, I think what people really forget about startups and business and whatnot is that the relationship you build is super important, right? And I can feel that with the hustle and the relationship that you have. I can really see why you're so successful already at what you do because you have that drive inside you. And I feel like with a lot of founders out there, like a lot of new founders, especially when they hit a problem, they kind of just like, oh no, there's a problem. I need to, I should stop and figure it out. You know, I feel like with great founders, they run through the problem. Like, you know what? This is not going to stop me. I'm just going to run through it, figure out a solution, and we're going to make it work. And time and time again, I hear this story where it's like, I have to find my customers, to find paying customers, and then figure out the product, right? So I think that's super, super smart. And over time, like you re- end up refining your products. I want to quickly talk about that too. Like what kind of pivots did you make in your product to turn it into what it is today? Because I know that you initially mentioned that you thought you had product market fit, but what was a real pivot that caused the product market fit? But sometimes as you're working inside your company and you're working on your product, you can't see that you don't have product market fit. So what came to that realization where it's like, whoa, maybe we don't have product market fit. And that's extremely difficult for most founders to realize. What was that point for you? Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky thing, right? Because you can sort of grow your company and get like paying customers and, you know, just assume that you have product market fit. But, you know, fundamentally, if your underlying unit economics is not sustainable and your customers aren't really sticky and they're not constantly coming back to the platform and using it more and more, it becomes really hard and really expensive to grow your grow your product. But, you know, you, you can be sort of tricked into thinking that you have product market fit, which is kind of like what happened to us. So um, we were selling to startups and small businesses, really early stage folks, um, eventually got into five startups they invested like i think at the time 
125K. And then we eventually raised like a seed round shortly after like doing demo day there. Um, I think total round raised in our seed round was a little over like 3 million bucks, you know, over the course of like two or three chanches. And it was led by uh, Draper Associates. They're like a kind of a, um, a big, you know, VC fund. They've done like SpaceX, Robinhood and all those cool companies. So we were like on like cloud nine. We like got out of 500 startups and we got all this cash. And we're just like, we're going to grow the crap out of this thing. And at that, at that point, we switched a little bit away from like just posting on Quora because it wasn't scalable to like doing more ads on Google and running AdWords. And at a certain point, I think we were spending close to like a hundred grand a month on Google ads, just acquiring lots and lots of customers and just focusing on growing like the top line revenue in the business, even though we were actually like losing a good amount of money because problem with the early stage startup small business segment is like the vast majority of them go out of business within like the first year. And then the ones that stick around are using you not so frequently. Like if you think about when you're starting a company, like the last thing you want to spend a lot of money on is a lawyer, right? And using it frequently. Like you're trying to like hire for engineer, you're trying to grow your, you know, trying to market, you're trying to spend money on like, you know, customer acquisition. You're not just like, let's spend lots of money every month and more and more every other month, like on lawyers, you know? So the problem with that is when you're building a marketplace startup, if your demand side usage isn't like predictable and recurring, then that doesn't provide a lot of incentive for your supply side to stay on board. Because if it's kind of coming in and out, then they get disinterested, they'll join another platform, they'll take another job somewhere else, and and, and the model sort of falls apart. So at this time, we were losing lots of cash, but we we're growing top line revenue. I think at this point we were doing like a hundred, anywhere from a hundred to like 250K in like monthly top line gross revenue, which is, you know, a sizable amount. And actually most companies would be able to like at that time, like this is like, I think like 2017, 2018, raise a series A, which is what we were going to do. We're just like, you know what, we're going to raise a series A and we're going to figure out this like, you know, losing of money thing, like later on, we'll have, we'll just raise, raise a bunch of cash. What ended up happening is we failed to raise our series A at the time. We didn't know why, but then we realized that there was a competitor that came out and he kind of like took our idea a little bit and raised like $70 million on this idea. And it so happened that he was like a famous founder. You guys might've heard of him. His name was Justin Can, and he launched his company called Atrium. And we were just like sitting there watching it and he raised from like every single VC that we spoke with. And we're just like, oh, so that's why everybody stopped like answering our calls. They basically like, you know, and it's like, I was like, you know, I'm not even like, I, I get it, right? Like the guy had like a close to a billion dollar exit that's doing a legal tech company. Why would you trust a bunch of like nobodies from Queens to like be able to compete with him? So this kind of goes into the second phase of it, where we were forced to get profitable. And at that time it was like a travesty. And we were just like, you know, we all like me and my co-founder stopped taking like salaries. We like got like laid off like 80% of like the team. And, and, you know, we just had to get profitable and it forced us to basically do that because we had no choice. And at this point, we were all in on law trades, right? So like failure just wasn't an option. It was just like, it just can't happen. So it was a blessing in disguise because it forced us to make this pivot into selling into, and this is kind of like maybe phase three of the story where we uh, find true product market fit by actually selling to legal departments in bigger companies. So we now work with companies like DoorDash, Pinterest, Open Door, AngelList. And what we do is we sell to the general counsels at those companies who have a daily legal need. So it went from startups that might have like an annual or quarterly legal need to companies that use us every single hour because their legal teams are small, but their companies are growing and scaling like crazy. 
So like, it seemed like, you know, we were like doomed for failure, but it all kind of like made sense. We actually rebuilt the product, but we used pieces of it that worked for the small business side and tweaked it for more longer term enterprise level engagements. And finally it all clicked. And our, like our, our LTVs went from like a thousand dollars to basically close to like a million dollars. And we sort of attracted even better supply and the revenue was predictable. And then we kept getting more customers, which attracted more supply. And then we got more supply to attracted more customers. And, and then we got to cash flow positive just based off of that sort of pivot. Atrium, as you guys may or may not know, they ended up going out of business. We ended up surviving. Another competitor also went out of business. And now, you know, we just actually just raised our series A a couple of weeks ago. Congratulations on raising a series A. And I think that behind every quote unquote, bad situation, there's always a silver lining, right? I'm really happy that you guys are able to like pivot and make it work because I think you guys really, really cracked that problem because um, I think had this not happened to you guys, like you might not be sustainable, right? And I do feel like most first-time founders fall in mindset too, where it's like, I'll just figure out like revenue later, get profitable later. I'll just go out there and raise a series A because we're running out of money, right? But I think that contrary to belief, if you don't have to raise money and become profitable, that's probably the best way to go, right? The fact that you raise your series A so much later, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't take away from your success. It actually means you're even more successful because you never had to race, right? So I'm really curious too, like what was going through your mind, I would imagine during this time where it's like, oh my god like things are not looking great and that tends to be a very common theme with being a founder right because some days are rosy some days are complete crap <laughs> so what was going through that mindset where you're just like oh crap what do we do what was going through your mind when you had to lay off like 80 percent of your staff no longer take salary like what was put us in that mindset right now like what, what were you feeling how did you pull yourself out of that rut to like reinvent the company essentially it was really depressing. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I mean, there, you know, it's not as glamorous as like you think it is, which is just like you go through this, you know, period of troth and then you come out swinging, you know, it felt like it was forever. It felt like we were in the bottom of this abyss and there was really like no way out. And even all of our solutions, we were second guessing ourselves because we we're just like, well, like we clearly didn't make the right decisions because we're in this situation. How can we actually like trust ourselves? And I think it helps having a good like co-founder or a good like early employee or team you know, I think, you know, we went from like, eventually at some point it was just like three or four of us. It was myself, my co-founder, our one engineer, and then our one like ops finance person who would just sort of like make sure that, you know, there was enough money coming in to, to make payroll meet. And we would just sort of sit together and some days were just like really quiet and we wouldn't really say too much to each other. And other days we would just explode and just be like, this is not working. That's not working. And like, but I think ultimately you know, like having the trust, at least for me, like I started the company, but like I brought on my co-founder pretty early on, like knowing that he wasn't ready to quit, like gave me hope. And then I think like when I got hope, he got hope from that. So it was a little bit contagious in that way. And we were just like, no, you know what? Like we're going to like figure this out and let's look at the data. Let's look at who's using the site. And that, you know, that led us to finding this one general counsel who worked at this company called Equities Then that used the app like every single day. And just, and we gave him a call. We asked him a bunch of questions and he was just like, yeah, like, you know, I just, I just want to use you guys on a monthly basis. I don't want to continuously start projects like startups do. And that's when this light bulb moment went off and we researched what a general counsel was and what they did and what his company was about. And his company was way bigger than other startups we've sort of worked with. And then it also just forced us from a financial standpoint, like, like I didn't go to business school, but like, you know, like 
the way you sort of like get like a business school education is when your startup is failing because it forces you to look at cash flows. It forces you to read a financial statement. It forces you to like reduced expenses. And like, I, I learned how to read a financial statement for the first time when the company was failing and actually like care about that. So like all of these things that were just like the harder the problem, like the bigger the lesson. And like, there was no amount of schooling or advice or, you know, networking with people that would have taught what we went through during that two to three year period of making that pivot. And it required us to also shut down the startup side of the business, which was doing, you know, a decent six figure monthly revenue to just focus on this segment because we couldn't do both. We were only four people. So like it was even scarier because now we're just like completely shutting down this other side of the business and going all in on this one side that was even smaller than like from a revenue standpoint than that one. And it was scary as hell. But like I knew that like we had to sort of go for the swing and it's kind of like we also were just kind of like, what else do we have to lose than just go all in on this? And, you know, after sort of the ego part of it kind of went away, we were just like, let's just do this. Let's go, let's double down on it. And, you know, and it worked out and, you know, we're about to cross like a million a month in revenue and there's no sort of like slowdown in sight, but it wasn't easy. And it was just kind of like the harder it is, it's almost like the rewards are also like the harder and riskier it is. The rewards are a little bit higher as well, I think. And I want to say like there was a, kind of like a the second part to this pivot was like we made this pivot and, you know, we were just like, all right, we're good. We're, we're heading into like 2020 strong. And then COVID happened and like then everything stopped again. So we're like on this like path. We're like, yes, we just made enough money to get cash flow positive. And then every company in those first couple of months just pause their usage with us. And we're just like, holy crap. And the thing with running a marketplace is like, it's not like a SaaS product. It's not like a consumer app. Like there's people on the other side that are depending on this as their main source of income and the money needs to flow. And if a customer and a bunch of them suddenly stop using it, then it's really, really bad from a supply perspective because you're still having to sort of pay them out, even though like a customer might sort of stop their spend. And, you know, there's, there's, there's all these sort of things there, but that was the last bit. And then we went through one more dip. And then finally, after that happened, then like usage just spiked up like crazy because companies um, needed to hire remote lawyers because the whole world went remote. We just spent the last couple of years building the largest database of like remote legal freelancers. Legal budgets were cut in half. Our services were half the price of a big law firm. Word of mouth grew, grew like crazy. This was like a much better alternative than using a big law firm. And then it all just sort of like came together like afterwards, but it doesn't stop really. But at least, at least for now, knock on wood, it's, it's stabilized for the most part. Holy moly. Like that story, dude, give me chills because like, this is, this is what we want in the podcast, right? You want this raw, unfiltered, unglamorous, horrible <laughs> startup experience, but it's very rewarding, right? And it's everything about your story is great. And I feel like you completely understand your situation really well and understand like what a clear mind is like, this is what I need to do when things are not looking great, right? And then unlike most people in this situation, you didn't give up. Like you kept looking for new solutions. And, you know, I, I feel like when your back is against the wall and you have nothing to lose, you're going to make things happen, right? You do things yeah. you would never do. Because yeah, now you're forced to look outside the box. Like, oh no, like, I need to make this happen. A lot of people depend on me. These feel a sense of like responsibility for like make, making it through and taking care of people and taking care of your customer, your brand, or your company, right? So one thing I'm really curious about too, as things were looking really sour, how are you able to manage expectations with your other co-founders? 
But on top of that, how are you able to continue building a trust relationship with your group of investors? Right. As you know, like raising money is pretty difficult, but also managing investors is also difficult. Like they get angry. They're like, oh, what's going on? I want my money back. Like, what's going on? So, how are you able to manage your team culture, pivot correctly while still, I don't want to say this, but like keeping your mind focused as the voices of investors started concerning you? How did you manage everything? Yeah. I mean, I, I went through a phase, like, especially after the first time I raised the, the, the seed round and, you know, it was a few million bucks and I've never seen that kind of cash before in my life. I mean, I grew up pretty poor and like, I never even had like a six figure job before. So there was a lot of high expectations of just like navigating that feeling lots of guilt that like I failed them feeling like just lots of, you know, tiny voices in your head, just like basically being like, you totally fucked this up and like, and they hate you for it. The reality of it is like, they're not thinking that. And if you actually raise from like institutional investors, they're dealing with hundreds of other portfolio companies. And for them, their business is like, they know that 99% of the investments that they make aren't going to work out. Not that necessarily they're going to fail, but maybe they'll either return their money back or get like a modest couple of, you know, two, three X return. There's usually like one or, or like 1% or 2% that end up like just doing exceptionally well that like makes up for all of their losses. I had all these realizations like afterwards, but like I really beat myself about it. And I don't think that way anymore now. I, I was always very transparent with them. I even, even despite all of the, the low periods of starting law trades, I would still send out like the monthly or quarterly investor updates. I would tell them, you know, Hey, like we didn't get to raise this round. Um, you know, our revenue is declining and you know, it didn't feel good sending that, but I still sent it, you know? And like, of course you, you, you'll, you'll sort of sense like a little bit of maybe like disappointment because you know, it's like, all right, they invested in you. They thought you were going to be a billion dollar company and it ended up not being that it's looking more and more clear that it's not going to be that. But I think we lucked out in terms of getting good investors that like didn't really give us a hard time with that. They understood it. I think that especially, you know, with this round this that we recently did, I actually optimized for a lot of like founder operators or even the VC that we took money from. There were former founders that uh, started their own companies and sold it and then went into VC instead of purely being like investors, because that allows them to like actually relate to you better and have some level of empathy. And they've been there as well, right? It's like, a startup isn't just like, you know, isn't just like 20% month over month growth every single month for like the next like 10 years. Like there's, there is like ups and downs that take place and the right investors will understand that and they'll appreciate that. And they'll know that that is like a normal part of building business. So I think all that's to say that like, you know, for anyone sort of thinking about taking money for me, that's kind of helped optimizing people that have built businesses before, built other startups before to just have a deeper sense of empathy for when things don't go right. And then even if you have like uh, investors that aren't, you know, that don't have like a founder background, just be, you know, I would say just be transparent, but just don't beat yourself up as much because honestly, they're thinking about so many other things and they think way less about you than you actually think, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's that's actually a really good tip. And I, I'm personally guilty of this. And we, we also raised pretty sizable seed round as well for Asian Hustle Network. And honestly, nice. the past year has been hard. You know, like we had to cancel a lot of things, cancel all our events. And I don't know, just back in my mind is like, oh, I'm just letting everyone down. How do I keep the team together? And I'm kind of going through 
your first pivot of your story right now as we speak it's like okay like i'm talking to more founders and all right as long as i don't give up as long as i keep thinking outside the box things are going to work out right yeah so i'm kind of curious too like how do you take care of yourself how do you take care of your mental health you know because like i think through your story there's a lot of inspirations of grit perseverance never give up but like deep down inside when you're by yourself when you're sitting there on the sofa when you're eating breakfast in the morning as you're waking up each day like there's obviously like everyone has their doubt right as you wake up I'm like, oh man like, i don't know if i can just continue doing this it sucks right now like how do you take care of your mental health do you practice any sort of affirmation do you take like do you exercise like how do you take care of that side of your mental health and your physical health as well yeah it's a really good question so for me after kind of going through those those different business pivots and then kind of like getting to this like product market fit level, I basically experienced like two deaths in 2020, like shortly afterwards. One, my mom passed away suddenly. And then two, one of my good friends who um, was around my age, who got me into internet startups to begin with, I learned a lot from him. He also was unfortunately killed. And these two deaths were like six months away from each other. So the reason why that relates to like how I feel when I wake up is Every single day since that, I want to say it's been, you know, close to like two years that happened in 2020. I don't take any days for granted. That's number one. I view my time as really finite. I know I think like as humans, we know that we're not going to live forever. But like, I think the vast majority of us don't really like feel that or don't really can think of that in terms of years or months or days or hours. I viscerally felt that. And I wake up each day wanting to change, if that kind of makes sense. Like just my outlook and not, not necessarily to like be better or be optimized or be more awake or whatever. Like I just want to just change or just a little bit and just whether it's my perspective and obviously it can be reflected back into the business and all of that. So it's just combination of wanting to change, wanting to treat each day like an opportunity to be different. And, you know, I, I think, you know, a lot of that advice kind of sounds a little like repetitive, but it's just milking each and every day and trying to make sure that I'm having the largest impact possible in this like 18 or, you know, 18 hour, 20 hours that I'm like awake. And whether that's through learning something new, whether that's through discovering something about myself, whether that's like, you know, developing deeper, closer relationships with other people or having hard conversations. It's, it's just really ultimately being as true and authentic as possible, as little filter as possible for the remaining days that I have. So I wanted to preface with that aspect of it. And then things that have helped for me and, you know, I wouldn't advise people to just go and just like copy this and do this for themselves and expect some sort of output. These are things that like naturally gravitated towards me and I do it as a way of self discovery and self understanding, but journaling in the morning helps me. I think for me, mornings are, I'm not a big morning person. And also when I wake up for whatever reason, I'm always just like a little anxious. So being able to just like write when I wake up drinking you know one liter of water and just writing out anything that comes to me not with any particular objective just pure stream of consciousness like anything that's there for whatever reason it feels a little bit better and then i usually sort of do a short like meditation afterwards there's no apps there's no music i'm, I'm usually sitting just by myself with like noise canceling headphones for at least 30 minutes, but usually like an hour. I usually feel the effects of it around like the 40, 45 minute mark. And that to me just acts as another 
sort of like cleansing almost. It feels like I'm sort of stripping away certain layers of whether it's thoughts or stress or anxiety. And I just do it for myself and, and, and I don't keep track of it. I don't, I don't view it as like a habit. I just, I feel more in tune with myself. I feel more in tune with the universe. I feel more in tune with like things around me when I do get that quiet alone time in the morning. And then, you know, during the daytime, I just try to kick some ass. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm really sorry to hear about your mom and your friend. I can't imagine what you have been through over the last two years, but I sort of feel that too, because I I had actually had two siblings that passed away. So that feeling of like, I need to make the most of my time. I think that is always in the back of my head where it's like nothing's ever guaranteed. I don't know where that thought yeah. comes from, but I, I keep thinking that way. Very similar to you. Similar to you. It's like, I have a very like improved mindset as well, where it's like every single day, I just want to do something better. Right. And I feel like that yeah. that goes a long way too, in terms of like mental health and like keeping yourself sane because, you know, as entrepreneurs, it's just like, there's not anyone telling us what to do. It's mostly us telling us what to do. It's like an internal voice. And sometimes you don't even know if that's the right thing to do, but your gut just says, trust me. <laughs> you know? So yeah. you might just go down that path. And I really appreciate the fact that you shared that you journal and you write and you free flow. I think that it's a great habit for a lot of us to adopt, especially I feel like a lot of times, especially that we kind of know the answer already, but throughout the day, it's like, you're just so preoccupied at work or attacking or conquering, whatever it is you do that kind of ignore the voice inside your, your mouth and your, your stomach and your, in your mind, right? That you really know the answer to what you need to do already. So you just have to like, let it free flow and you reread it and you're like, well, I know exactly what to do. Why was this so anxious, right? Yeah. I think there's a very big difference between like having thoughts in your head and trying to sort of tackle that problem and putting those thoughts onto an actual piece of paper and taking a step back and looking at it from different angles. I think that's a very powerful thing because it removes it from a lot of the emotions that might be tied to some of these thoughts. And Sometimes it is your intuition, but sometimes it's your mind. And sometimes your heart will sort of tell you to go in a certain direction, but that's not always actually right. And sometimes you need to use your mind to be able to like your intellect, whatever way you want to look at it from a non-emotional standpoint to make like a right decision. So for me, it's just removing it, putting it in an external source and looking at it from various angles and attacking it from different angles is really powerful. Yeah, definitely. So I have one final question for you. I think this question is pretty unique in our situation. I don't know if you noticed, but in the startup world, you realize that a lot of people go to like really high-end schools like Stanford, Harvard, Princeton, whatever. And I feel like with our situation, it's like we make things work for us, right? And understanding our circumstances, networking, and your situation. Talk to a lot of people at 500 Startups to get started. What advice do you have for an entrepreneur that didn't exactly come from the most privileged background that wants to get into entrepreneurship, that don't have any connections to like get into startups and, and learn a lot more from the right mentors in the community? What advice do you have for them as if they want to like get into entrepreneurship and never really thought that they can do it themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the internet is like the great democratizer of information, of access, of connections. And I think it's one of, you know, it's probably the greatest invention of our generation, right? Like there's people that are going to be able to listen to this podcast from all over the world and, you know, like be able to pretty much listen in on a conversation with somebody who, you know, frankly speaking, I wish I heard like when I first started the company, right? 
So I think that the world is moving less and less away from the credentialing. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it still definitely helps, right? Like on paper, you know, one versus another. Um, in the early days, maybe the Stanford computer science dropout will get picked over you for like a seed investment. But ultimately, it's 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 the people that stick around and the people that have the track record and the people that have like built it brick by brick, by brick, by brick over the years that will completely overshadow anybody with just any credential because your credential can only take you so far. And, you know, your, your, your work product is the internet, right? That's the ultimate resume, what you publish, what you think, what you speak about. And, you know, I, I mean, one of the reasons I did this podcast is I wanted to sort of share this story and just have that there. And if somebody wanted to get to know me, they can just click play, listen to this and like, get up to speed on my life story, you know, and like develop a deeper sort of connection with them. And I'm always happy to sort of connect with people in that way. And, 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 you know, that kind of goes into like the connections aspect of it. You can follow people on Twitter, you know, you'll be surprised how many people respond to a cold email, how many people respond to like a Twitter DM. And I would focus more on the work, right? I think like the new resume is the MVP is the product. The old resume is like, you know, the PDF of like where you went to school and like bullet points of like your work experience and anybody can create anything on the internet now. So it's the great equalizer. I love it. I love that advice a lot. So where can our listeners find out more about you and reach out to you online? Yeah, I'm, I'm on all the main uh, social channels. You could find me on Twitter at R44D. Rod was taken with two A's, so I just replaced <laughs> it with four. I rodamed.com. I also have like a Substack, rod.substack.com, where I write out like just weekly thoughts and things that interest me. But yeah, I'm, I'm all over online, rodamed.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing everything on this podcast, Rod. It's Absolutely one of my favorite podcasts and one of my favorite interviews so far. So thank you oh, so man. much Thanks. for sharing everything. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. This was super fun. Of course. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.